0: So I think about heaven probably every day. Got enough to worry about, rather than worrying about what happens after we're not here anymore. So, I think everybody thinks about it, the afterlife on a daily basis. They should. We've got a, a nine-month-old and a three-year-old, so I feel like kind of the idea of heaven and thinking about where they're at and what, uh, how we can best direct them towards a lifestyle that would please God and get them there is is pretty high on our list. It's not one of those things I dwell on all the time just because I don't like being morbid. So, you know, it's in the back of my mind, obviously, but it's not something that like I wake up and I'm like, that's like the first thing on my mind or anything like that. Not a lot of time, but I think um, as we get older, we think about it more than we did probably in our twenties and thirties. I don't think that there's an afterlife and I don't think that you should live with morality because there's an afterlife i think you should just live with morality because you need to respect the people on this earth with each other heaven helps us keep perspective if you don't think about that then you get stuck in all the the day-to-day stuff of of life and you miss out on what really matters which is the things that last for eternity You know, it's amazing to me how few Christians even think about heaven. I think I understand why the overwhelming responsibilities of this life sometimes eclipse our thinking about the next life. Not only that, heaven seems remote. It seems irrelevant to those of us trying to rear a family or keep a job or make a living. Why should we be concerned about heaven? And yet, even though we don't think about heaven that much, There are times in our life when we long for a better place than earth, isn't there? Perhaps it's a betrayal by a close friend. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one or the breakup of an important relationship. Sometimes there's a disappointment in this life that makes us long for something better. Philip Yancey writes, The Bible never belittles human disappointment. But it does add one key word, temporary. What we feel now, we will not always feel. Our disappointment is itself a sign of an aching, a hunger for something better. And faith is, in the end, a kind of homesickness for a home we have never visited, but have never stopped longing for. We all long for that home. That place called heaven and contrary to what some people believe heaven is not just some fanciful creation of somebody to help dull the pain of the reality of this world the Bible says heaven is a real place in fact Jesus assured us that heaven is a real place in John 14 Jesus said to his disciples in verses 2 and 3 in my father's house are many dwelling places if it were not so I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. As we're gonna discover in the coming weeks, Jesus is right now in heaven. And he is overseeing the largest construction project in all of history. He is building our future home. This place he calls heaven. Now, the question is, why should we talk about heaven? Well, one reason is, our departure for heaven is both certain and relatively soon. You know, the Bible talks all the time about the inevitability of our journey to this new destination called heaven. Our departure is certain and it's soon one wag said it this way he said the statistics on death are quite impressive one out of every one dies have you come to grips with that the fact that you are going to die A writer of ecclesiastes solomon said it this way man does not know his time like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare so the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Death suddenly comes without any warning. Isaac the patriarch said, Behold now I am old and I do not know the day of my death. And neither do you, neither do I. Soldiers on a battlefield, Cancer patients whose disease have been labeled terminal, they all understand the certainty of death, the reality of death. But it's just as real and uncertain for you and for me. And the fact that life is very brief here on earth should motivate us to use our time very, very wisely. In Psalm 90 verse 12, Moses prayed, teach us to number our days and recognize how few they are. Help us to spend them as we should. Every time I read that verse, I think about a wonderful friend of mine who is now in heaven. His name was Harold Warren. He was the chairman of the pastor search committee that called me to First Baptist Church Wichita Falls many years ago. And uh, Harold lived by this verse. He was in his mid to late 60s when I first got to know him, and I remember going to, into his office one day and seeing this blackboard, and it was filled with chalk marks, just little marks. The whole board was filled up with those. And I said, Harold, what is that? He said, Well, the Bible says that I'll probably live to be age 70, so those marks represent how many days I have left to live before God calls me home. And every day I walk into my office, the first thing I do is erase one of those marks. Well, Harold went on to live to be 70 years old. All the marks were gone. But on the day after his 70th birthday, he started making a mark on the chalkboard. And the reason he did that every day was to remind himself that he was living on borrowed time. Now that's what Moses is talking about. When we realize the brevity of our life, we should live wisely. But you know, recognizing how brief our time is on earth also ought to motivate us to think about heaven. Many of you know the story of Johnny Erickson Tada. I just had the privilege of writing the foreword to a new study Bible she has produced. Johnny's story is remarkable. When she was a teenager in 1967, a diving accident caused her to become a quadriplegic. And since that time, Johnny has spent a lot of time thinking about heaven. She writes, heaven may be as near as next year or next week. So it makes good sense to spend some time here on earth thinking candid thoughts about that marvelous future reserved for us. Why should we spend time thinking about heaven? Because as we're going to see in the weeks ahead, the choices we make in this life drastically impact the next life God has prepared for us. Johnny Erickson is not the only one who has spent time thinking about heaven. As you look through history, great Christian writers and thinkers and philosophers have written a lot about heaven. C.S. Lewis said one time, the problem with most Christians is not that they think too much about heaven, but they think too little about it. Lewis said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think about the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. And then his famous words, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Here's the great irony. The more we think about the next life, the more effective we become for God in this life. I've seen that illustrated in a strange way in my own life. I've heard had this experience 3 times and I pray to God I never have it again. I hope I'm finished with this. But I've had this experience 3 times where I was serving in a church and then called by God to another church. And you know, it was always exciting going to a new place of ministry, but there was always that period of time after the new church had called me that I had to go back to my old church and finish up my work there. I'd have about a month to kind of wrap things up. And you know, ironically, those four weeks or so were usually the most productive time in my entire ministry in that church. You know, I was really highly motivated because I knew I would be leaving soon. I wanted to wrap things up and leave things in good shape at that church. And not only that, I had a certain freedom. I mean, I could make the decisions I felt were best, not having to worry about what other people thought because after all, what could they do to me? Fire me? Who cared? I was already going someplace else. And I thought, you know, that is a good metaphor for what our life ought to be like here on earth. The fact is, we're all leaving here. Our departure is certain. It's not going to be very long till we go to that place called heaven. But knowing that our future is secure ought to be a motivation for us to live the most effective lives for God that we can right now. That was certainly true of the Old Testament saints, where they were talking about Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah. In Hebrews 11, there is that roll call of faith, these heroes of the faith. And notice what Hebrews 11:13 13 said all, about all of these men and women of faith. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. They never received the blessing until they died, but that didn't stop them from thinking about it. They were fixated on that future country God had planned for them, and that future country is what motivated them to live obedient lives. The same was true for the Apostle Paul. He was living in two worlds at the same time. His citizenship was in heaven and yet he was on earth to fulfill God's will. And that caused a conflict in Paul. In Philippians 1:21, he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He said, you know, it works out for me either way. As long as I'm living, I'm living for God, doing what he wants me to do. But if he decides to take me, guess what? It's, it's going to be better for me. And that's why he said in verse 23, I'm hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ for that is very much better. And yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Paul said, I'm conflicted. I'd really like to go on to heaven and be with God. But at the same time, I want to be here and fulfill the ministry God has for me. That's the kind of life God wants us to have focused on our future home but being effective in this world until God calls us home. Well, of course, the fact is for all of us here today, God has left us in this world, at least for now. So here's the question. Since we are here and we're not there, why should we be thinking about there while we're still here? First of all, focusing on heaven reminds us of the brevity of our earthly life. Focusing on heaven reminds us of the brevity of our earthly life. As many of you know, both of my parents died at a relatively young age. And while I certainly miss my parents, one of the benefits of their early departure was reminding me constantly of how brief our time here on earth is. It's over in a moment. I was talking to a Police officer, Friday night in Houston, he said, you know, it's like God has hit the fast forward button. Things are going so quickly. Have you ever felt that way before? James said it this way about the brevity of life. James 4:14. 4, he said, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor. That Greek word atmos means a mist. You are just a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. King David said a little more eloquently in Psalm 39, verses 4 and 5, he said, Lord, make me to know my end, and what is the extent of my days, and let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Focusing on heaven reminds us of the brevity of our earthly life. Secondly, focusing on heaven prepares us for the certainty of judgment. The popular song, everybody is going to heaven, couldn't be more wrong. Everybody is not going to heaven. I want you to turn over in your New Testament to Matthew chapter 7. And I want you to look at Jesus' words in verses 13 and 14. Let me remind you of what Jesus said. It's counterintuitive to what you hear today. It's politically incorrect, if you will. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. But the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life and few are those who find it. Jesus said there's not one way, one road that leads everybody to the same destination. He said there are two roads or ways that lead to two very different destinations. Will you notice three observations about these two verses? Number one, there is a way that leads to eternal death. There is a road that leads to eternal death. And Jesus said most people are on that road. What is that road, that way? Isaiah 53, 6 says, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Do you know how you can make certain you go to hell when you die? Just do nothing. Just do nothing. Just keep living like you're living. Keep going the way you're going. And you're absolutely guaranteed to end up in hell. The moment we are born, we are born on the road leading away from God. We are born on that pathway to hell. say, how do I ever get off that road? Well, you have to make a U-turn. You have to make a U-turn, a spiritual U-turn, get off that road, and get on the more narrow road that leads to heaven. I don't use that term U-turn by accident. That's a biblical term. Did you know that? The word is repent, metanoeo. The word repent means a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. And the Bible says the only way you'll go to heaven is to get off the road you're on right now, have a change of mind about who Jesus is that leads to a change of direction and put your faith and trust in him to lead you to heaven. Jesus made that very clear in John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way. I'm the road. I'm the path. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. That's the way, secondly, that leads to eternal life. There's a way that leads to eternal death. Most people are on that way, that road. There's a more narrow way that leads to eternal life. But notice thirdly, there are gates that open to both eternal death and eternal life. Jesus said at the end of the road, for those who are non-Christians, there is a gate that leads to eternal judgment. For Christians on that more narrow road to heaven, at the end of their lives, there is also a gate that leads to everlasting blessing. What are those gates? The gates are judgment. You see, the Bible says at the end of our lives, whether we are a Christian or a non-Christian, every one of us is going to be judged by God. Remember what Hebrews 9.27 promises? It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. That's not a truth just for non-Christians. A lot of people think only non-Christians are going to be judged. No, that's for everybody. Every one of us in this room, every one of us watching this program, one day will be judged by God. Now, the difference is there is one gate, one judgment for non-Christians. And there's another judgment gate for Christians. The gate, that is the judgment that leads to hell, eternal death, is the judgment we often refer to as the great white throne judgment. It's described in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. We'll talk about this judgment more in the coming weeks, but look at it with me briefly. And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Verse 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Non-Christians are going to be judged by their works. You say, well, I didn't think God judged people by works. Oh yeah, he judges non-Christians by their works. Because they have decided they wanted to be judged by their works. They've said, I don't need God's forgiveness in my life. I don't need grace. I'll try to make it on my own. So God says, fine, let's open the books and see how well you've done. It doesn't matter how good any of us is. We're not good enough to get into heaven. And every person will understand that at that judgment. That's the great white throne judgment. But there's another judgment that we as Christians face before we enter into everlasting blessing. And it is what we call the judgment seat of Christ. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.10 to Christians. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That each one of us may be recompensed, rewarded for his deeds in the body. According to what he has done. Whether it be good or bad. Phallus, literally worthless. We're gonna face that judgment as well. Heaven's not gonna be the same for everybody. There are levels of heaven, different experiences in heaven based on what we do in this life, whether or not we live obedient lives. Understand, we don't earn God's salvation, that's a gift, but what we do after we're saved makes an eternal difference in the kind of eternity we experience and you know that's the great irony folks as brief as this life is the choices we make in this life as brief as it is the choices we make now impact our eternity forever Do you remember the movie from a few years ago gladiator with russell crowe Remember in the movie, the fictitious Roman general turned gladiator named Maximus told his men, what we do in life echoes in eternity. That's why it's so important that we, the few years we have, live obedient lives for God. Focusing on heaven reminds us of the judgment we must all face. Number three, focusing on heaven motivates us to live pure lives. It motivates us to live pure lives. Friday, I had to run down to Houston to preach at a Bible conference. And also while I was down there late in the afternoon, I had to tape a national television interview. So all day I was concerned, my number one concern was, how was I going to keep my suit, my tie, and my shirt clean throughout the day until I did that interview? The reason I was concerned about it is, I know how unforgiving the bright lights and the HD television camera lens are. They pick up on the tiniest tiniest piece of fuzz or dirt, anything at all, millions of people would see. So I wanted to keep my clothes clean. You know, I thought that's a good example of why we want to keep our lives clean. Did you know the Bible says one day our lives, which the Bible compares to spiritual clothes, one day our lives are going to come under the harsh glare of God's judgment. And he and everybody else is going to see our lives for what they really are. First Corinthians 3.13 says, On that day, talking about the judgment for Christians, each man's work will become evident for the day. The light of God's judgment will show it. As I said, the Bible often uses clothing as a metaphor for our spiritual lives. And this is so key to understanding this principle. In the biblical times, when the Bible was written... People wore two types of clothing. There were two tunics that every person would wear. There was, first of all, the inner tunic. These were like, I guess, undergarments today. It was pretty standard fare. Everybody wore the same kind of inner tunic. That's what people didn't see. But then there was the outer tunic. That's what was visible for everybody to see, the inner tunic and the outer tunic. In the same way, the Bible says, as Christians, we wear two tunics. There is the inner tunic. The inner tunic represents our judicial righteousness. What is judicial righteousness? It is our right standing before God. That's our inner tunic, our right standing before God. And we receive as Christians our inner tunic the moment we trust in Jesus as our Savior. The moment we say, God, I can't save myself. I need your forgiveness. God clothes our lives in his righteousness. So that when God looks at you and me, he sees us as totally, completely forgiven. Our sin has been covered. It's not something we earn from God. It's something we receive as a gift. In Philippians 3, 9, Paul said, May I be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Paul said, my clothing's not good enough to get into heaven. It's full of holes and it's moldy. There's no way God's going to let me in based on my works, my life. I want to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The moment you trust in Christ as your Savior, you receive that judicial righteousness. You are declared at that moment forgiven. Your sins are forgotten forever. That's the inner garment. But nobody wants to be running around heaven in his undergarments, does he? You want something else on your life as well. That's the outer garment. The outer garment represents our ethical righteousness. Ethical righteousness. That means our right acting before God. Judicial righteousness is our right standing before God. We are declared not guilty the moment we trust in Christ. Ethical righteousness is how we act after we're saved our obedience to God. It is our right acting before God. And the Bible says before we are reunited with Christ, we want to make sure that we're not just walking around in our undergarments, but that we have the finest outer garments on possible. He's talking about our behavior, our obedience to God. Did you know the Bible says one day when Christ returns and we see him We're going to join him for a great celebration on earth called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And it's so important that we be clothed spiritually in the right outer garments. In Revelation 19 verse 8, John said, And it was given to her, that's the church, you and me, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints." Think about when you go to a fancy dinner, maybe perhaps a rehearsal dinner or wedding celebration, you wouldn't go, ladies, in a halter top. Guys, you wouldn't dress in your cutoffs or Bermuda shorts. Hopefully, you would wear the finest clothing that you had for a formal celebration. It's the same way when we are reunited with Christ. We want to be wearing those good works, that obedient life befitting the church. And by the way, once we put on those clean garments, we want to keep them clean, just like I did my suit on Friday. We don't want our lives to become stained by sin and disobedience. Let's face it, it's hard to keep our lives clean in a polluted world like this one, isn't it? What the Bible is saying is one of the best motivations for keeping your life clean before God is focusing on heaven and that future reunion with Christ. Peter said it this way in 2 Peter 3, 10 and 11. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. He's talking about the end times. But then in verse 11, he draws the application. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct? and godliness realizing everything we see around us is wrapping up to a conclusion realizing Christ is coming back again what better motivation is there to live clean lives in holy conduct and godliness focusing on heaven is a great motivation to live pure lives number four focusing on heaven places suffering in perspective Focusing on heaven places suffering in perspective. One of the questions I keep being asked as pastor is, why did God allow and then fill in the blank? Many times it's some great national tragedy like 9-11 or a terrorist attack of some other variety. Why did God allow this if God is sovereign? Many times when people say, why does God allow evil in the world? They're really talking about, why does God allow suffering in my life? Why did God allow me to be fired unfairly from this job? Why does he allow me to suffer through a broken relationship? Why does he allow me to suffer the loss of a loved one? Why does God allow suffering, especially for those who are his people? You know, interestingly, the Bible never answers the why question of suffering, never does. But it does help us put suffering in perspective. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, Paul, who certainly had his share of suffering, wrote, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I want you to notice the two words here Paul uses to describe the suffering of his own life. First of all, he said his suffering is momentary. You think, Paul, how could you say that? For years you suffered every kind of tragedy known to man. How could you say it was just momentary? Well, circle the word momentary and draw a line to the word eternal. He said, my suffering is momentary compared to the eternity of blessing God has planned for me. And the same is true for you. You may feel like you're in a situation that will not end. You think this is going on and on and on and on. God, why don't you stop this? Why don't you bring some resolve to it? God understands what you're going through. He knows exactly where you are. He's saying, remember this, whatever it is you're going through is momentary compared to eternity and the blessings I have planned for you for ages and ages to come. You know, we can't get our heads around eternity, can we? We have no idea how long eternity is. One writer said it this way, imagine a little bird that comes once every million years to sharpen its beak on the top of Mount Everest. Comes once every million years, does its thing, flies away, comes back a million years from then, does the same thing again. By the time that bird has worn down the entirety of Mount Everest, by the time it's accomplished that, eternity will have only begun. What you're going through is real right now. The suffering you're experiencing may seem like it's endless, but it really is momentary when compared to eternity. And then notice he also described his suffering as light. Light. How could you say that, Paul? Have you developed spiritual amnesia? I mean, think about it. You were shipwrecked. You were left for dead. You were beaten five times within the inch of your life. You would ultimately be beheaded. How could you say your suffering is light? Well, again, as compared to what? As compared to what? Draw a circle around that word light. And then draw an arrow to the word weight of glory. He said, my suffering is real, but it's really relatively light when I think about all that God has planned for me, the weight of his future blessing. You see, weight is a matter of perspective. I mean, if I showed you a 2,000-pound block of concrete and asked you, is this light or heavy, the answer is, compared to what? I mean, compared to a feather, a 2,000-pound block of concrete is very, very heavy, Compared to the weight of a 150-story skyscraper, that concrete block is very, very light. And again, it's the same with the suffering you and I are experiencing right now. Whatever problem you're facing is real, it's heavy to you. But what Paul is saying is compared to the weight of the blessing God has planned for you for all eternity, it's light. One person said it this way. When compared to the glories of heaven, the worst suffering of this world will one day be seen to be nothing more than a one-night stay in an inconvenient motel. That's what Paul is saying to us. Focusing on heaven doesn't eliminate suffering, but it does put that suffering in perspective. Although God's promise for heaven is yet still future, it really should impact the way we live every day. For what we do in this life echoes in the halls of heaven forever.